a large percentage of the population, I would beg to say half of it or more, has problems breathing through their nose. We've lost this ability. Some of it's due to evolution and some of it's due to the environment. But I think one of the most important health hacks that everyone should do all the time is breathe through your nose. And the science certainly backs that up. Okay, so last time I checked, we all breathe. It just happens. But what if the way you breathe made a massive difference in everything from your risk of debilitating illness to your depth and quality of sleep and energy and creativity and performance? Well, it turns out it does. Breathing is maybe the single most effective and accessible switch we can throw to radically transform and take control of the way we feel and live. And by the way, when we leave it to chance, as most of us do, our breathing often defaults into a mode that sends us spiraling into poorer physical and mental health and underperformance in all parts of life. Which is why I was so excited to sit down with James Nestor for this best of conversation. So James is a science writer who has written for Outside, Scientific American, The Atlantic, Dwell, New York Times, and so many others. His award-winning book, Deep Freediving Renegade Science and What the Ocean Tells Us About Ourselves, it was a revelation and in no small part kicked off this science writer's fascination with breath. That led to a years-long immersive quest to understand this often ignored key to both human potential and all forms of peril. And it led to his blockbuster book, Breath, The New Science of a Lost Art, which is a myth-busting and paradigm-shifting look at how we breathe and what it does to us and how to harness breathing to transform our health and lives. So excited to share this best of conversation with you. I'm Jonathan Fields, and this is Good Life Project. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. It sounds like the common theme in your life really has been a fierce obsession with kind of two things, how things work and also the water, just the lifelong attraction to the water. I think that's true to to a large extent. You know, growing up in the OC in Orange County, a lot of people think, or at least they have this perception that Southern California is this dreamland of convertibles and beaches and all that. But, you know, the the area in Orange County in which I grew up in Tustin, it's an extremely conservative place. I mean, it's it's really equivalent to to Texas in many ways. So it was interesting to be surrounded by this perception of free loving, you know, beach vibe, carefree, no worries, and then also be within this place which was so obsessed with worrying about everything, <laughs> you know, extremely conservative on, on every level. So it's an interesting dichotomy to navigate, especially when you're, when you're young as a teenager. Yeah. Where did you fall in that spectrum? Cause I think also when people think about like, who's the kid who's in the water all the time, who's the surfer, they think about the hippie kid. They think about the free loving kid. But my guess is if you sat on a wave, you know, and, and you had a hundred people out there on any given day, you're going to get a cross-section of the entire sort of like span of who's in that area. Oh, I think just everybody went to the beach. I mean, that was really the only thing to do. The summers down there are suffocatingly hot, you know, 110 sometimes. So every single day, I would get a pocket full of change and take the bus to the beach with my friends. We'd stay out there all day. We'd come back in the evening, wake up and do it again. So you you did have an incredible cross-section of, of people. I mean, every walk of life, everyone was out there all the time. And being that I didn't grow up on the beach, I grew up 15 miles from it. That meant I was an outsider, you yeah, know, yeah. <laughs> so not, not a local at 32nd Street. So that was always interesting to navigate. But, you know, I found once you're in the water, everybody becomes a lot more equal. It depends how respectful you are, how good you are at surfing or at swimming. And all of that really fades away. There's any, any mark of status, the car you you're driving or, or your watch or whatever, you, you don't have that out in the water. So it's a great equalizer in a lot of ways. Yeah. I mean, I, I have a lot of friends who are lifelong surfers, some who grew up around there. Some who grew up actually uh, more a, a little bit south, like San Diego, surf swamis growing up, and mm-hmm. uh, and to the one, you know, they depending no matter how they started out, they've all kind of said the same thing. It is it is the great equalizer, and also, you know, there's also there are very there's a culture around it where there there's a very specific set of rules that you live by and that you respect, and if you disrespect the rules or the people within that system you pay the price. <laughs> and that that's completely true with the crowd out there from a human standpoint. And it's true from a natural standpoint. You know, you have to respect the rules of the ocean. And if you think you're too good 
or if you think you're going to circumvent them in some way, you're going to get thrown down in, in some very serious ways. And that's what I also liked about it so much is there were a different set of rules that to me made a lot more sense than the rules on land. The rules on the ocean were applied to everybody again, beyond status or anything else. And they just seemed a lot more fair. <laughs> you know, these, these are the rules of the, of the wild in many respects and you have to abide. Yeah. It's it, interestingly, it's sort of like the ultimate merit-based ecosystem, right? There's no cronyism on the waves. <laughs> No, it's 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 true. I mean, there's cronyism be, between the people, the surfers out there, but there's yeah. that only lasts so long because right, yeah, then, yeah. You're, then your friends are going to go in and then you're out there alone, you yeah. know, and, and that to me is always the most wonderful part of being in the sea is for one reason or the other, when people get bored or the waves aren't good or it's too late or it's too early and no one else is out there and you're just alone in this wilderness. And, and that's what attracts me to San Francisco so much. People don't think of San Francisco as a great surfing beach because it isn't. So don't come here, anybody. Um, <laughs> but it's, it's, it's still very, very wild. And you can still find a peak all your own, of no one around and really have that connection. Yeah. It teaches you how to be with yourself. And it also teaches you, I think a lot of people think about surfing, they're like, well, you're just out there riding waves all day long. It's like, mm -hmm. no, you're out there waiting for waves all day long. And you, you know, if you pick up a couple, awesome. If you pick up one or two killer runs, like that's a good day. And it's like, it's such a different mindset than sort of like the average mindset about how we pursue life. that I almost wonder if it's instills in you sort of a different approach to the pursuit of what you want from a younger age. I think it, I think it does. You know, there was one, I don't know who it was, some famous surfer that, who said no one who surfs all the time that he knew of ever had a psychologist or psychiatrist. <laughs> um, so <laughs> maybe either because these, these people were too deranged or because they already had their stuff together to go out there and, and surf every day. I don't know the reason, but I think that there is a certain truth to that. And certainly the people that I know who are religiously connected to the ocean, they seem not to have uh, so much of feeling of a, of a burden on the stresses of life on land. And I certainly feel a, a release every single time I'm out there, which is why I go pretty crazy if after a few weeks I, I'm not able to get in the water. So, you know, I, I think that there's, there's those two elements. We're, we're terrestrial people. Where we evolved on the land, and yet when we go back to the ocean, we go back to our very earliest roots of before we were people. And as corny as that may sound, I really think that there's a strong connection that you feel, that your body feels, and, and it resonates with you when you're out in the sea. Yeah, no, I completely agree. I actually, um, I grew up just outside of New York City. The end of my block was a beach. I, w I was bay, not ocean. Mm -hmm. So you know, we were we were out there water skiing and fishing instead of surfing. But it was that to this day, it's the place where I go to touchstone. You know, it's the place where I go just, I don't have to be in the water. I can just be sitting on a dock or walking along a beach, but there's, there's a down regulation of my nervous system and my state of being that happens just being in the context of water. That is so hard for me to find anywhere else. And that's, that's all measurable. You know, it's not just psychosomatic. It's, this is stuff that has been measured time and time again of how the body reacts 
to either being in the water or by the water, which is why 70, what is it? 70, 80% of the population lives within 30 minutes of a coast. <laughs> you know, I, I think that that's, we do that for a reason because we have that, that connection. Yeah, no, I completely agree. Um, the other end of that, I have a friend who is, um, big wave surfer. Um, uh, she grew up sort of Irish surfing royalty with her, her, her dad and, and I think uncle or grandfather, you know, she's Eastie Britain who's been on the podcast a couple of years back, would surf on this pink surfboard, pink helmet. She's like five feet tall, surfing these waves that are 10 times the size of her. And it's amazing to hear her describe the experience of, you know, you, the way she describes it is you can't be afraid. You have to have the absolute respect for the power of what you're em- embracing, but you have to move to a place beyond fear or else it's over. And it, it's a really interesting training ground to, to get to that space as well. I think it's extremely advanced to get your mind to, to be thinking that way. And that's something that resonates with almost all activities on the water, whether you're sailing across the, an, an open sea or whether you're free diving. You know, you can't free dive with, with fear in your heart. You're, you're going to go down 10 feet and turn around. So it, it almost gets to the point where you have to become delusional in, in your own self-worth and your confidence in order to do some of this stuff. And that's, to me, what separates the people who, who last in, in these sports and, and who don't is their context of where they fit in and knowing their level of just the tipping point of their level where they can make it and where they might not make it and be able to understand and respect that is really the, the key. Yeah. And, and at the same time, you know, we're talking about an environment where every time you step into that next threshold, the stakes go up, you know, and pretty soon the stakes are life and death. So it is sort of the ultimate training ground, basically. For sure. And, and to me, that's in, in many ways is what makes it so much more real. There's, there's so much padding around, or at least we've created in our in our society now, you know, even playgrounds are completely padded. They have sand or they have that weird colorful padding stuff that there's, there's much less risk in doing things on land. But I, I view that a lot of that goes out the window when you, when you enter into the ocean, because we just don't have those. Yeah. There's, you know, some flotation devices, some of those surfers vests, but those are only for big wave people. If you're the regular Joe and you're just going out to the sea. It's, it's you and a board. And even if you're body surfing, it's just you, <laughs> you and a pair of fins and you need to figure it out. At least in, in San Francisco, a lot of other beaches, there's no lifeguards either. So you, you have to understand that and be cognizant of it the, the entire time you're out there, especially if the waves are big and, and know your limits the, the whole time and know that balance. And uh, to me, that's what really centers things. Because then you get in your car and you've got airbags, and you've got seat belts, and then you, you drive home and you get a flat tire, you've got AAA. <laughs> there's none of that out, out in the sea, in the ocean. There's, there's no one to call except, you know, your, your inner strength and, and your own relationship with, with yourself and your abilities. Yeah, that's such an interesting frame, right? Because if you think about probably the most intrinsically rewarding moments of life are also the moments where we are most present in what we're doing. And then you, you think about what you just described, you know, when, when you step in the water, you have to be there. There's, it's not about, you know, like, it, cause if you're not, you're going to get tossed around and, and you may end up in a bad place. But as soon as you step out of that environment into the car with the protection to life with the protection, we can basically pay to buy enough protection to not have to be present 
in almost every other part of our lives. And you wonder, on one hand, what are we actually buying ourselves into and out of? That's, I completely agree with that. Like even having a, a phone conversation, you're checking email, you're checking Twitter and checking Instagram. We, we are constantly padded. If the phone conversation is boring, we have all these other means to entertain ourselves. But, but in the ocean, again, that, that really goes out the window. And, and it's that, it's that safety net, you know, coming loose from you that I find so, so liberating. And I think that's another reason why when you're surfing or when you're swimming, you're, or, or body surfing, free diving, whatever, you are in that exact moment. You're not thinking when you're on a wave, maybe when you're waiting for waves for half an hour, you're thinking about work and all that. I've come up with my best ideas in those situations, but when you're actually on a wave, when you're within this activity, you are locked in to that microsecond of a moment the entire way. And I think that that absolute focus and presence, at least in, in my life and a lot of other people I know, um, is really lacking. You know, we're not going out and hunting for our food now where you have to be locked into that moment. When is the right time to, or at least a lot of people aren't hunting their food. Uh, but I think that this is something that, that allowed humans to evolve. Uh, is to have pure and utter focus on a moment. And so much of society now is built on not having that focus. No, I so agree with that. For a long time, mountain biking was was my jam in my adult life. And uh, there was a time where I actually, um, I, I rode from Grand Junction, Colorado to Moab, Utah on the Cocopelli Trail, which is this at least the way that I did it was, was a really like, there's only one direction that you go and the entire time you're on the edge of falling off into the abyss. <laughs> um, and it was grueling and psychologically taxing and physically taxing. And one of the most incredible experiences in my life, simply because the nature of the activity demanded that you have, you cannot be anywhere but there. And yeah, I feel like the more, whether you get it through the water, whether you get it through nature, whatever is the, the thing that you choose, I mean, I, I, I think we, we'd all be better off had, bringing more of that into our lives. You, you referenced earlier free diving, which I want to explore a little bit. Um, you grew, grew up in the OC, uh, end up in the world of advertising, copywriting, start freelance writing on the side. You get into the world of magazines because that's, you start to realize writing is your jam and eventually find yourself writing full time for different magazines, doing long form pieces, short form pieces. And at some point you get a gig to cover this thing called free diving. Um, I guess it was for outside magazine was the first time. That's right. Um, yeah. Tell me how that unfolds. And then what, what is the experience that comes out of that? Yeah. So a couple of years before that happened, I had always following, you know, the good rules laid out in the OC. I had followed this very linear path. You know, you, go to high school, go to college, get a job, get a house, get your car, get your dog, all of that. And, you know, I was still writing on the side just because it was something I was really passionate about. By day, I was writing copy and ads and catalogs and all that stuff. But at night is when I would do freelance magazine writing. I never thought I could make a living doing it. I mean, it was sketchy back then and it's even more sketchy now. But finally, I just came to this moment where I had been at, working at this one place, extremely easy job and good pay, assistant and all that stuff. But I remember at my four year review, my boss sat me down, you know, and he told me exactly what he told me at his 
third year review and exactly the same thing as the second year. And uh, that's when I, I quit at, the, at that moment. And it wasn't really premeditated. And so I kind of floundered. I wasn't sure what I was going to do, but I knew I didn't want to do that. So I really felt this fork in the road from that OC life to this other very wild life where uh, nothing was planned. Everything had to be improvised. So after a couple years of writing some magazine pieces, things were starting to pick up a little bit, not enough to make me comfortable at all. A friend mentioned, he's like, hey, have you ever heard of freediving? And I know that this is really hard for people people to believe, but uh, I hadn't, even though I had spent my whole life by the ocean, uh, surfing and swimming. Uh, I didn't spend too much time below the surface, but I had never heard of freediving, had never actually seen it. So I said, oh, this sounds like an interesting subject right right up my alley. I wrote uh, my editor at Outside. I said, it so happens to be in a couple of weeks, there's this international freediving competition in Greece. I thought, there's no way this guy's going to send me out to Greece about a subject I knew nothing about. But I guess the, uh, the, the pitch was good enough or intriguing enough that a week later he said, okay, you're on. So uh, without knowing much about this, this sport at all, without knowing any of the players, I went to Greece. And that's when a completely different fork in the road started in my life. And another door opened uh, when I saw the first freediver take a single breath of air and upturn his body, no fins, no anything, and completely disappear into a crystal clear ocean. And he was gone for five minutes, came back up, and he just dove 300 feet. And uh, I had never seen anything like that. And I didn't think it was possible at all. And yet the next person showed up, did the same thing, even lower. Next person, even lower than that. So that first day out there was, I, this is such a cliched phrase to use, but it was, it was life defining and life changing for me because I realized that there was a completely different side of nature and the ocean, which I thought I knew. And, uh, I, you know, I was standing right in the middle of it in the beating heart of, of this activity. I knew nothing about and in so many ways. It looked like interstellar travel. You know, if you were to flip the globe upside down, these people were floating off into this blue space, no gravity, no anything else and, and coming back and, um, you know, touching down to the, to the sailboat that was out there. So it, it absolutely fascinated me. And I called my editor that night. I was like, Oh my God, this thing is just absolutely nuts. He was very excited about it. And that's really where things started in that direction. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Good Life Project is sponsored by Lexus GX. So have you ever owned something that inspired you to just up your game? For me, it was this high-end mountain bike. I love the ultralight frame, the suspension, the precision gearing, and I realized it deserved to be ridden to its full potential. So I started training harder so I could experience the joy it could give back to me. And it paid off. That bike helped me discover just new levels of performance and straight-up joy. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Imagine tackling rugged landscapes with the available 33-inch all-terrain tires and multi-terrain select, then unwinding with the available front-row massaging seats. This is a vehicle that inspires you to go further to live up to its full potential. So why settle? Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Good Life Project is sponsored by NetSuite. So I remember when our businesses were just starting to really scale. It was amazing and also added complexity and stress. And the things that I used to do in hours were taking days, too many spreadsheets, too many systems, no single source of truth. If that sounds familiar, you should know these numbers. 37,000. 25 and 1. 37,000 businesses have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. And 1. Because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your key performance indicators in one efficient system with one source of truth, manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need to grow all in one place. And right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com slash goodlife. That's netsuite.com slash goodlife to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash goodlife. And we're talking about people basically just in the water there's no tanks. There's no anything. It's just them. It's just tra- training their bodies, training their breaths, and then literally just starting to to dive straight down, it, which is counterintuitive on so many levels for so many people because you're like, well, A, but the body floats. So how do you go that far down? And and I guess what you learn over time is that for the first, what, 30 feet or, or so, yeah, the body does float, but then the quality of the body's composition starts to change and the pressure that's put on it so that you become a lead weight effectively and you just start to go down. That's that's exactly right. And that's another thing that completely blew my mind is a lot of these people were wearing wetsuits because 300 feet down, it's really cold. It doesn't matter if you're in a tropical climate. It's usually really cold down there. So with a wetsuit, you're extremely buoyant. Any surfer knows this. You put on your wetsuit and it's it's really hard to dive down even a few feet. And so to watch these people, you know, in the first like 15 feet, 20 feet, they're kicking, they're swimming, they're pushing themselves down. And then all of a sudden they just stop. And instead of getting pulled up to the surface, 
they start drifting effortlessly down deeper and deeper into the water until they're completely gone. And I knew nothing about this. And I learned later that it's that shift of buoyancy that occurs. What, what I ended up calling the, the doorway to the deep, other freedivers have used that term as well, in which the body stops getting pulled to the surface and starts getting pulled to the bottom. And you will just keep falling at that same rate as low as you want to go. So it just adds this absolutely surreal aspect to, to watching this, especially in clear water where you can watch these people just fade away into nothing and then come back and reemerge and be completely fine. A couple things happen as you descend also. One, you lose light, you know, so at the top you can see them. So them fading away into nothingness is, you know, in part there, there's distance between you, but also the light be- you know, essentially leaves the water. <laughs> so they're effectively in the pitch black, yeah, which is, I mean, it's got to be incredibly disorienting also. I- I've done a little bit of scuba diving in my past and we went night diving once. This is years back on the barrier reef. We're on a boat. You jump off and we all have these little torches and you know we're in pairs. And as long as I had the torch on, I could orient myself. But for those who don't know about scuba diving, you wear a weight vest. And that helps you become neutrally buoyant so you're not floating up or down. And and I remember losing my torch and the light went out and it was pitch black. We were three hours off the mainland. It was a dark night. And I started to freak out because I didn't know whether to swim left, right, up or down to get back up to the surface. And this is that, but amplified exponentially. Yeah. yeah. Just imagine if you're holding your breath in that situation. And the, these are people, the, these are the pros who do this. Anyone that goes down 40, 50 feet in most water, you're going to be able to see just fine. But it's not only the, the quality of the light that shifts, also the color of the light fades out the deeper you go, right? So, so reds and oranges are going to fade out around, you know, maybe 50, 70 feet until it becomes this completely monochromatic world. So you're, you're in a world of, of grays and, and blacks. That's it. That's all that's down there because light, the frequencies of light can't penetrate that, that deep. And something else that happens beyond that is the body transforms. You become a terrestrial animal and you turn into a marine animal. And this isn't just, uh, again, some psychological transformation. This is something that occurs within each of our bodies and everyone has these abilities called the master switch of life or the mammalian dive reflexes. And what happens is instinctively, instinctually, I should say, your your heart rate is going to lower. Your brain is going to enter a meditative state. All the blood from your extremities, your hands, your arms, your legs are going to start pushing into your core to keep your organs alive. And plasma is going to enter into your lungs to perfect, to prevent them from collapsing. And you, you really become this different diving animal. The deeper you go, the more pronounced all of these uh, reflexes become. So by the time you've reached 300 and 400 feet, you know, you, you bear maybe a passing resemblance to your form in the terrestrial world. And anyone can can experience this. You can go to a bathroom right now and splash cold water on your face and your heart rate's going to lower probably about 20, 25% just by doing that. Uh, these are the same reflexes that dolphins have, whales have, other marine mammals have, but humans have them too. Um, we're connected to the ocean in the same way of these, these other animals. Uh, just so few of us uh, ever use them or, or feel them nowadays. So it almost, it, 
the environment forces your body into this transformed and almost meditative state. And, you know, part of it is also, you know, as you go down, you know, one atmosphere, which is what about 30, 33 feet, when you start to go more and more with each new atmosphere you're going down, the pressure on your body increases more and more and more. So your body literally has to transform or else it will implode into itself. So, you know, for, for years and years, scientists thought the deepest a human could go down would, would be a hundred feet because otherwise your heart's going to collapse. Your lungs are going to collapse. You're, you're going to die. But they didn't know about the mammalian dive reflexes. So Greek divers have been diving to depths below that for, for thousands of years. You know, there's archaeological evidence of free diving that goes back 10,000 years. So, so this is something that is innately part of who we are, and where we came from. So it's, it's nothing that, that is artificial or forced. If you let yourself become reimmersed in the water, you're going to wake up all of these dormant reflexes that everybody has. That was something that I found most fascinating about freediving. The competitive side was interesting to see the limits of the body, but a lot of people didn't make their dives and that was awful. They, they'd come up with bloody faces and it's pretty, pretty horrific. But luckily I discovered at that event, this completely other side of freediving that was much more nurturing, almost like a meditation or, or a yogic practice underwater. And that's the side that I really went deep into and pursued. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like there's almost a spiritual side to it. And in fact, I mean, from a state of mind, when you start to get down that deep, we talked about the physiological changes, but what about the psychological changes, the sort of like almost spiritual experiences? It's a forced meditation. And this is what any free diver will tell you. There's no way you can go out there worried and stressed out and <laughs> breathe real fast and then try to push yourself down there. You have to completely let go, which means you need to let go of your thoughts. You need to relax your body. You need to submit to this larger thing that you're entering into. So that was another aspect that really appealed to me is that you had to really leave everything on, on land, including your thoughts about land and your stresses, think about work or flights or whatever. You have to leave that behind and just soak into that, that moment that you're in the water, you're surrounded by oceanic animals and you just let yourself be, be free and let your body do what it's naturally designed to do, which is dive deep. Yeah, the um, as I guess has become a bit of a, a your mode of writing. At a certain point, you can't just observe and write. You have to become a part. Of it. I mean, it's very sort of Michael Pollan esque in the experiential journalism approach. You know, you, you did it earlier with uh, you know, like doing a, a deep piece on bio uh, benzes and biodiesel and how people were using discarded. You know, like. French fry oil to transfer cars and then you end up driving a bio Benz. So when you're out here, you're in Greece and then you start going deeper into the story and you're seeing and, and, and talking about and learning about all these things, something, something flips in you that says, okay, so I can't, I can't just be an observer. Like I need to write about this from the inside out also. I, I just think some of that has to do with the, the subject matter. You know, I wrote a lot of pieces about, architects or Hollywood stars or political figures, but none of what they were saying about their world really 
attracted me to want to know more about it. I know that seems really crass. And I'm not ripping on anyone's vocation, but there there wasn't too much um, that that was mysterious enough to to really want to invite me to spend more time in in a lot of those worlds. But luckily, luckily enough, you know, I was able to pitch enough stories about ideas that I was naturally interested in, like the biobends piece. I had a full-time job at that time and, and that was so boring. And so writing these magazine pieces, I would just pick things that I was interested in. And it turned out that, that, yeah, I was like, this makes total sense. Why not run an old Mercedes off of used vegetable oil? <laughs> and, and so uh, once I saw how to do that, I said, oh, I'm going to buy one of these cars and do that. And I still have the car. It's out, out front of my house right now. So freediving was the same thing, even though I had never heard about freediving, didn't have any experience in it. It was something that immediately mystified me and attracted me to it. And, you know, it's a little tricky when you're a science journalist, and you have to be an objective observer into these worlds. Otherwise, people think you're slamming it in some way. But there's only so much of this this stuff that really interests you that that you can hold back from. I had no intention in deep of freediving, zero. I had no intention of having myself as part of that book or as part of that story. But on my third expedition, seeing these freedivers, you know, at this time I was out in Reunion Island off the coast of Madagascar, like very distant, weird location, and watching these divers go down. And their job was to sneak up behind sharks and to tag their back fins with these little uh, trackers uh, because sharks kept attacking people and, and eating people off the coast. And uh, just watching this activity and their relationship with these animals, because something else really interesting happens when you're free diving is you're not an observer into the oceanic environment. You're a part of it. And animals immediately recognize that their prey doesn't swim down to them and look them in the eyes and hang out. Their prey is up at the surface, not looking at them. So to see that dynamic, I, I thought, wow, this is <laughs> this is something I want to learn more about. And I also thought it could allow me better access to be able to write about these worlds and what it was like to go down, you know, 50, 75, 100 feet on a single breath and focusing on on that moment in that that place in time yeah i mean was to the extent that you had an expectation of what you thought it was going to be how did the actual experience and i guess i'm most curious about the first time how did it compare to your expectations uh the first time was awful and it continued to be awful for months and months and months. You know, you have this dream vision of, you know, I'm just going to practice a little bit. Then I'm going to be swimming around with whales and dolphins and sharks and everything's going to be cool and beautiful. And I found this new hobby in life. And then you start to practice doing this and it was violent and suffocating and <laughs> totally miserable. I picked this school. I was in Florida on some other research. So I picked the school in Tampa. And instead of free diving in the ocean, they had you dive in this this former quarry this this mine uh, that had just filled up with water and so within 10 feet you couldn't see the surface so they were trying to train us to go down 50 feet along this rope and so i had my breathing you know i had my lungs pretty well acclimated to doing this really focused on that i had not focused on the psychological part of what it would feel like to push yourself down 20 30 feet turn around to look up to see the surface and see nothing. 
So <laughs> that was something that took a long time to get my head around. Also, it didn't help that at this free diving competition, I saw a lot of reckless people doing reckless things and had a lot of bloody faces and passed out, you know, passed out people in my mind. I guess you could, you could say, I was going to mention their eyes because a lot of these people when they're passed out, their eyes are open. If you ever look into someone's eyes when they've passed out, you're, you're looking into the, the true abyss. And so that's something that still gives me the chills. So I had all these psychological hangups about it, not physical, but psychological. Yeah. What turns out, I mean, I'm curious when you go from something like that. Yeah. I have a friend who has done a whole bunch of plant-based medicine and, and probably a hundred journeys. And, and the first third were described as the most horrendous experience of their life. <laughs> and then something happened that made them say, I can't not do this. It is so profound and transformative. There was a, you know, something happened. I'm always curious when, when you start something like that, and it is kind of on, more on the horrific side and the brutal side, and then it becomes something that becomes much more on the almost spiritual and opening and expansive side. Is that a gradual evolution for you or did, was there a moment? It was being around the right community. Num number one, to seeing these people do these dives responsibly over and over and over and to see them interact with animals that I care passionately for sharks or dolphins or whales. And just to, to see what that world would allow you access to if you got over that hump, over that hurdle. And so it was months of training. Again, I, I want to reiterate that the physical side was actually pretty easy. There's a pool near my house I would ride my bike to and just swim underwater laps, really conditioned my body at around 15 feet, just swim back and forth. So that part of it came came calmly and easily. The, the mental part took a while, but I, I finally got there. And I think that at the time, I'm trying to think if there was one pinnacle moment, it was probably at when we were in Sri Lanka and um, trying to dive with sperm whales, the, the largest tooth predators on, on earth who also share this amazing, sophisticated form of communication and seeing the other divers having these experiences and seeing the whales react to these divers, right? So the, the whales perception of humans is on boats or hunting them or polluting their, their homes but to see whales have a different perception of humans and to want to incorporate that perception and be part of it was was a really moving thing. And so that's when a lot of those hangups, you know, let, I let go of them and was able to just allow myself to, to become immersed in that environment and with everything that comes with it, including being possibly eaten by a 60 foot long sperm whale, you know, with eight inch long teeth. And I know that I'm not trying to, to make it sound callous in any way but there's a there's a complete knowing when you're there with this animal that can destroy you at any second by myriad means and it decides not to and it decides to turn around and click at you and be curious about you and want to interact with you so that's when a lot of my fears both about free diving and about everything else it encompasses really went away yeah i can't even imagine that moment i mean I, i've i've seen video of these animals you actually um did a ted talk um which showed some stunning footage of this and it's just breathtaking. I can't even imagine being in the water literally feet away from these. It's, it's interesting because like as a journalist, I've been lucky enough to go to some pretty weird places 
write about some some interesting subjects and interesting people. But whales and free diving, th- this was years ago that I had this experience. I think about it all the time. And I was literally just on the phone this morning with a friend. We're waiting for travel to open up again because we're going to go dive with whales with, without any cameras or notepads this time, just, just to do it. And this is a reaction that every single person I know that has, that has gone diving with whales had that face-to-face interact. Like they are completely changed after that. So it's something that, that I will keep with me and in free diving, I'm more excited about doing it now than I've, I've ever been. So it's, it's nice to find something that was a very interesting subject from my perspective to write about, but also could be incorporated into my life that would continue to nurture me after the book was out and after the, the stories stopped. Good Life Project is sponsored by Lexus GX. So have you ever owned something that inspired you to just up your game? For me, it was this high-end mountain bike. I love the ultralight frame, the suspension, the precision gearing, and I realized it deserved to be ridden to its full potential. So I started training harder so I could experience the joy it could give back to me. And it paid off. That bike helped me discover just new levels of performance and straight up joy. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Imagine tackling rugged landscapes with the available 33-inch all-terrain tires and multi-terrain select, then unwinding with the available front-row massaging seats. This is a vehicle that inspires you to go further to live up to its full potential. So why settle? Live up to the all-new Lexus GX. Luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. And part of that exploration, too, you know, part of the training that goes into free diving is it's physical, but it's also, it's, it's breath-oriented. You know, there, there, you, you learn to train to breathe certain ways to regulate the, the balance of gases, basically, in your body before you go down, which, which I guess 
laid the groundwork for your most recent book, Breath, to a certain extent. I mean, I, I know part of it was that, and then part of it was this experience that you had through the art of living. Hmm. That's exactly right. Um, you know, when I mentioned that fork in the road <laughs> in, in in my life in Greece, uh, that fork had many many tongs to it, or I guess they're tings. I guess that's the proper proper word for forget. But um, I was talking to freedivers who were not interested in competition and they were just interested in freediving. Of course, I naturally asked, I said, well, how do you freedive? How do you, how do you do this? How do you hold your breath? And they said, the only way to hold your breath is to learn how to breathe and learn how to breathe properly. They said, the real cool thing about this is you don't only have to use this in the water. You can use this in everything in life. And they told me crazy stories about people who were heating their bodies up in snow, melting circles around their bodies at night, breathe, just breathing for eight hours. People who put diseases in remission, people who were losing weight just by shifting their breathing. So I remember that conversation and I put it in the back file of the big file cabinet, a bunch of weird ideas. And I, I kept going back to it because I kept seeing articles and kept talking to people who kept adding other little tidbits to that story. And I thought, huh, you know, I've written a book about holding your breath. It would be interesting to see what breathing could do, both scientifically and, and the history of this, the medical history of it and all that uh, for, for the rest of us, for, for land lovers. So that sparked that idea. And w- what was in non nonfiction, you submit a proposal, then you get a, an amount of money to go out and write the book. So I wrote this proposal pretty quickly. I, th- I thought, oh, I have this thing figured out, you know, wrote it in about a month, said nailed all the, the proper characters and all that. And it wasn't until about six months, eight months in to actually writing the book that I realized every direction I thought I should go into was completely wrong. So I had to ditch the entire proposal and start over again. And breathing ended up being bar none, the weirdest and most fascinating subject I've ever gone into. And I'm still in the midst of it right now, even after finishing the book. It is, it's really incredible. So I have a background in in the world of yoga and, but my one, really the entry for me to yoga was actually breathing. It was pranayama. And I was, I got really curious how, when you look at, and it's not just yoga, if you actually go back and you look at every single spiritual or healing tradition in every single culture over generations and thousands and thousands of years, they all reference breathing as sort of like the fundamental modality to regulate or mediate everything, you know, like your psychology, your physiology, your well being. And yet, when you bring that up as something valid to explore, especially in sort of like Western culture, people kind of tip their head sideways and they're like, what? <laughs> and that's exactly what I was doing when I first heard these stories, right? I, But it was interesting enough and it was valid enough, just barely, to make me want to pursue further research into it. And once I started really getting my my feet wet and talking to real scientists at top universities, you know, Stanford, Harvard, all these people had been saying this stuff for for decades and no one was really listening. And so I started a real deep dive in, into history and just echoing what, what you just said, breathing was an essential part of health throughout for the past few thousand years in medicine. If you did it poorly, you were going to get sick. 
if you did it properly, you were going to live long and have a healthy life. So even the first yoga that dates back 5,000 years was a technology of sitting and breathing had nothing to do with movements or poses. It was sitting and breathing. And you look at the, the Chinese Tao, they have seven books dedicated entirely to breathing. What happens when you do it improperly? What happens when you do it properly? So uh, it's, I think that Western science is now just really starting to get caught up with this, especially with all this COVID stuff. But the, what I found so so frustrating, but also so fascinating, is that this research has been there the whole time. And no one's really looked at it from a scientific perspective on how well it, it looks and taken all these disparate fields together and, and put them in, into, into one place. And I think that some of that is because breathing's a tricky thing in, in medicine. It's, uh, there was one researcher who said it's in this no man's land between physiology and biology. So nobody's really paying attention to it. Pulmonologists pay attention to diseases of the lungs. They're not looking into the benefits of healthy breathing, uh, even though the benefits of healthy breathing, from what I've found, are more important or as important as what you eat or how much you exercise. It all comes down to breathing. That's the first thing you have to start with. Yeah, I mean, I think there's such a fascinating parallel between that world and psychology and that for generations, psychology was focused on bringing sick people back to baseline. And then, you know, the positive psychology movement comes along and says, okay, so baseline is actually not enough. You know, like, w what if we could bring people from baseline, you know, from instead of not sick to flour you know, actually flourishing in the world, you know, and I, th I feel like breathing has a really similar corollary with that. But, but that's what yoga was too. It was not intended to be used for sick people. It was intended to be used for healthy people to bring them up on the next level. In all of Eastern medicine, if you look at it, it's all based on prevention. You go to your doctor when you feel good so you can keep feeling good. And all of Western medicine is based on therapy. You go when you're feeling sick, you know, and which is why, in, in my opinion, I don't think a lot of Eastern medicines are too effective in, in fixing big blown up chronic diseases that have been going on for years and years and years in someone's body. You know, you break your leg. You don't really want acupuncture. You want to go to the ER and have that dealt with properly. And, and I think it's, the, it's those blind spots on both sides of, of medicine that really need to be bridged to use this Eastern medicine as a way to not get sick and to use Western medicine for when you're really sick. And, and, but but the, again, the whole point is to not lose the balance to begin with. It's to constantly stay in, in homeostasis. One of the things that you discover early on is where most people just are relatively agnostic as to what pathway air takes into your lungs and out of your lungs. You discover that whether you're breathing through your mouth or whether you're breathing through your nose actually has a profound difference. And, and you don't want to just research this again. We go experiential here, right? As, as this whole thing became, you know, you end up hooking up with another guy and doing this experiment at Stanford, um, where you spend half the time breathing through your nose only and half the time breathing through your mouth only to share more about this. Cause it's, it's kind of crazy. <laughs> yeah. I realize I'm sounding like a broken record here, but, but the caveat <laughs> again is when I started this project, 
this book. I told my publisher, I was like, I'm not going to be a part of this. I was a part of the last book. I've been a part of too many articles. I really want to be on the outside. I want to be the objective observer. That's where I need to be. But then we realized once again that so many of these these gray areas and blind spots needed to be filled. And I was willing to put myself into those areas and to test what was happening in my body in in labs through through breathing. And this isn't like some, at least the Stanford experiment, wasn't a human guinea pig. Oh, let's just see what happens. You know, some people said, oh, it's like supersize me. I said, in, in some respects it is, but in supersize me, you know, he's eating at the same restaurant three times a day. Uh, 50% of the population, uh, that's one estimate, um, says that we are chronic mouth breathers. So, so half of us are breathing from the mouth. So, so the experiment was set up to see what was happening to a large percentage of the population every day, what was happening to their minds and bodies. And I looked for some research on this, if anyone had done this, and there just there wasn't a lot. So I had been in conversations with the chief of rhinology research at Stanford, and about by our, our third interview, starting to get pretty chummy with this guy. His name is uh, Jayakar Nayak. Great dude. And I, I hatched this idea. I said, well, you know, we can sit here over lunch and talk about this stuff hypothetically or, or we can test it. What do you think? And uh, he said, yes. So me and one other one other guy, Anders Olson, who is a, a world renowned breathing coach and therapist. So I thought, oh, this is going to be interesting. Well, if we took one of the best breathers in the world and made him like 50% of the population, what would happen to his body? So over 10 days, they plugged our noses with uh, silicone with tape over that so that we were forced to breathe only through our mouths. We were forced to breathe the way we would likely be breathing in the future and the way a large swath of the population is already breathing. So Within a single night, uh, my snoring increased by 1,300%. Um, we felt awful. We felt constantly thirsty. We felt fatigued. There were psychological markers, but what I found, what was more interesting was what was actually the data, what was happening to our bodies. So we took pulmonary function tests before blood work, cats, I mean, anything you can imagine, 70 different markers. And by the end of those 10 days, I was snoring and I hadn't been snoring before. The other subject was snoring through half the night. We had sleep apnea. We felt absolutely awful. Uh, our bodies were cooling. We were losing uh, CO2, which is an essential molecule in the body. Uh, it, was, it was horrendous. It was as awful as, as it probably sounds. But uh, the, the good part about this is we were then able to switch our modes after 10 days. So they moved those, those plugs out. And we put tape over our lips and we just breathed from our noses. And the first night, all the snoring disappeared, sleep apnea disappeared, every heart rate variability went through the roof. We were able to exercise much more efficiently. Um, we had more, more power, longer endurance, easier recovery. I mean, I could go on and on. I won't give you the whole, the whole layout, but it just echoed what, what, the Chinese had been saying for thousands of years. And one, one quote that I thought was great was, um, this is from the Tao. Uh, it says, the breath inhaled through the mouth is called Nietzsche or adverse breath, which is extremely harmful. Be careful not to have breath inhaled from the mouth. You know, that was 1200 years ago. So everything that, that we found added credence to that. It seems so obvious, 
But you look at any other animal, and the 5,400 different mammals, they're not mouth breathing unless they're uh, throwing off heat. They're thermoregulating. They're breathing through their noses all the time. And humans should be doing this as well. It changes your your mental state and um, your physiology. It also really interesting numbers around performance, mm-hmm. um, you know, in terms of just the difference between breathing through your nose versus your mouth. Yeah. And, and trainers had been looking at this and researching this for years. About 20 years ago, uh, Dr. John Duyard had bicyclists get on a stationary bike and then train by just breathing through their mouth and just breathing through their nose. And he found that Someone who had been breathing 47 times a minute through the mouth was breathing 14 times through the nose, but getting the same amount of oxygen and was able to push so much harder with less effort. So the competitive advantage is huge, you know, double digit percentage advantage to doing this. And it's something that is just mostly lost on us because a large percentage of the population, I would beg to say half of it or more has problems breathing through their nose. We've lost this ability. Some of it's due to evolution and some of it's due to the environment. But I think one of the most important health hacks that everyone should do all the time is breathe through your nose. And the science certainly backs that up. Yeah. And it sounds like it's all, there's a big use it or lose it effect to that too. So it's, you may have trouble starting to get back into it because especially if you've you're, you're one of that 50% that, you know, breathes predominantly through your mouth because it kind of gets plugged up when you don't use it. It's, you know, it's like almost like a muscle atrophying. It's a, the tissues inflame and it, it makes it harder to do. But then as you slowly reintroduce it, it begins to open up and you may find yourself able to do it in a way that you thought was, wouldn't be possible. That's exactly right. Uh, a doctor, another doctor at Stanford had looked at the noses of patients who had laryngectomies, who had a whole drilled in their throat so they could breathe out that that channel and she found that their noses within two months to two years had completely plugged up 100 percent because they weren't used and she fixed her herself her own chronic mouth breathing by training herself to breathe through her nose all the time and the more you do it the more you're going to be able to do it because you are changing your physiology you're changing your your anatomy you're strengthening the soft tissues on the back of the mouth and widening your airways by just breathing through your nose because of the pressure, you know, and, and a lot of people are, are hesitant to do this because they say, oh, I don't get enough oxygen breathing through my nose. Well, you're going to get about 20% more oxygen breathing through your nose than through your mouth. So, which is what makes it especially effective for exercising. Yeah, it's something I think it, we're just patterned to experience breath feeling a certain way. And it takes a little while to sort of, uh, for our brains to be like, oh, this is, a, it's going to be okay. It's a little uncomfortable in the beginning, but it's going to be okay. But your body wants to, it really wants yeah. you to breathe through your nose. That That's yeah. the thing. This is, it shouldn't, it might feel a little forced at the beginning, but it will be rewarding you 10 times over if you start breathing through your nose, for sure. Yeah. One of the other things that you explored was the effect of different breathing patterns. And you mentioned earlier, even before you got into this, you were having all these conversations with the three free diving crew about these mythical and mystical stories about people throwing heat off their body in the cold and healing everything. And, you know, how could that even be possible? And it's funny, you, you, you reference Herbert Benson, who wrote a book, I don't know, it's got to be 35, 40 years ago now about the relaxation response first reference these monks who 
part of their their rite of passage was to sit outside, you know, in sub-zero temperatures covered in wet shawls. And they would do a type of breathing and meditation where they would not just not die, but they would literally dry the shawls. You would see them steaming off them. And I remember reading that years ago and being fascinated and researching and discovering this thing called Tumo, which now a lot of us know as sort of, you know, that somebody who's really popularized that Wim Hof has sort of taken that and, and built a, a more modern artifice around um, this sort of technique, which has been around for, you know, probably thousands of years. Share a little bit about, about that and, and how it can actually um, change what your body's capable of doing. Yeah. And this was another one of those subjects, one of those areas where we've had the science, the stuff has been backed up for such a long time, but no one's really been listening. So one of the researchers that I got really fascinated with was Carl Stow, who was a choral teacher in New Jersey and found that by training his students how to exhale more and exhale properly, they were able to really gain a residence and, and more volume with their voices. And he ended up getting called up by the Met Opera to, to train their singers. And then the VA hospitals asked him to come in and train emphysemics, who had this horrendous disease of emphysema, who weren't being cared for at all. They were plugged into an oxygen tank and, and basically left to die. And this had gone on for, for 50 years. But just through breathing, by teaching these people how to breathe properly, he rehabilitated people more than any researcher thought was, was possible. And there are x-rays, mounds and mounds of x-rays to, to prove this. But still, the second Stow left the hospital system after 10 years of working within it, all of that research went away. And his book is now like $300 on Amazon and it's really hard to find because nobody read it at the time. It was released in 1970. So these these patterns kept repeating, and especially with, with Tumo. So this is a meditation, a technology that's been around for a thousand years. About a hundred years ago, Alexander David Neal, a French opera singer, traveled to the Himalayas and learned it and wrote about it. I think her book came out in 1927. So it got a little bump of interest then. And then the next big bump happened with, with Benson, who had heard these stories, probably read David Neal's book, and actually went out to test it and prove that these monks were able to breathe in ways to stimulate an incredible amount of heat within their bodies, and more importantly, to sustain that heat for hours at a time. They were able to sit in snow for hours and not get hypothermia or frostbite, which our understanding of medical science, how, how is that possible? So then Wim, Wim Hof came out and he's the, the torch was passed to Wim Hof who discovered this, you know, around year 2000 and now has built quite an empire around breathing and, and Tumo and having this ability. And what's been so great about seeing what Wim's been doing is he's having this stuff scientifically tested with controlled you know, controlled studies of these, of various people have been testing this over and over and finding that this incredible transformation takes place in the body by just breathing to the point where many people with autoimmune diseases, psoriasis, eczema, even type one diabetes can either blunt or outright, according to them, cure these problems by shifting how they're breathing, which 
you know, of course, sounds like complete pseudoscience. But then you look at the data and then you look at the CRP profiles of these people and you find what they're doing is is absolutely legit. And all of this stuff is real. So I, I see that this is really the moment for for Tumo. Hundreds of thousands of people are doing it now. And we're we now have ways of measuring it to prove how powerful it really is. Yeah. And what I love about all of this, I mean, there are so many other things that you explore in the book, but what, what I love about the, the bigger conversation around breathing is that it's accessible to anyone. <laughs> it's free. You can do it for life and it puts, it gives you a sense of agency. You know, it makes you, we're so used to going to somebody else to fix us. But when you start to explore breathing as a modality for everything from, you know, physiological changes to psychological changes to simply calming down, I mean, uh, just the most fundamental reaction, you know, the, the connection between your inhales and your exhales and triggering your sympathetic versus parasympathetic nervous system and whether that puts you into a fight, flight or freeze versus really chill, calm and meditative. You know, it's, it is such a powerful tool when you start learning, well, it's not just about getting air into my lungs. It's not just about transferring, you know, oxygen into my red blood cells because my, so my body can function. It is about that. But this process, which we all just assumed was part of the autonomic nervous system, it just, it just happens. We actually have the ability to intervene, to make it intentional to change the way we do it and in doing so create really profound changes in nearly every part of our being. It's exactly right. It's an autonomic function that isn't only autonomic, it's it's conscious. And when we take control of it, we can actually control how our organs are functioning and their relationship with one another and our hormone levels and our circulation and on and on and on by simply controlling our breathing. It is an absolute anchor to to our health and to our well-being for you know from this point until until we age so they found in in 1980 they found the single most important marker of longevity wasn't genetics wasn't diet wasn't exercise it was lung capacity so the more lung capacity the healthier your lungs are the longer you're going to live according to the data so this is something the ancients have known for thousands and thousands of years. You know, one of the reasons that there are so many yoga poses now where you're stretching, breathing into your right side, stretching, breathing into your left side. Guess what happens when you do that? You are increasing your lung capacity and you're buttressing your respiratory health every time you do these poses and you breathe in these ways. So, it, you know, I think that some of the apprehension in breathing where people kind of poo poo it is the medicine itself, which is air. Not a lot of people think that we can change the skeleture of our jaws or our faces or our ribs with just air or that we can flood our bodies with different hormones or turn on circulation or turn it off. But for the people who have studied this, who have x-rays and data, people who have experienced this, that, that air, and there's 30 pounds of it that enters and exits our lungs every day is as important as, as the food we're eating or how much we're moving around. And that's something I, I really absolutely believe in, especially after these years and years in this field. Yeah. So powerful. 
something that I was so excited to to dive into your exploration of it because it, it gave me a whole bunch of new places to sort of to go narrow and deep, which is I think going to be a focus of mine for uh for a while now. So this feels like a good place for us to come full circle as well. So hanging out here in this cross country container of the Good Life Project. Uh, if I offer up the phrase to live a good life, what comes up to be present? I think I, again, I realize how cliche that is and, and to follow your own path. There's another cliche for you. Might as well use, use two of them at the same time, but something I've learned in, in my life is, is to, uh, you know, naturally to follow your instinct, where you need to go and how you need to do it. And, and to trust in that, I think is a vital to, to being happy in, in the day to day. Mm, thank you. Hey, before you leave, if you loved this episode, Safe Bet you'll also love the conversation we had with Wim Hof about breathing and how it affects your physiology and psychology. You'll find a link to Wim's episode in the show notes. And of course, if you haven't already done so, go ahead and follow Good Life Project in your favorite listening app. And if you appreciate the work that we've been doing here on Good Life Project, go check out my new book, Sparked. It'll reveal some incredibly eye-opening things about maybe one of your favorite subjects, you, and then show you how to tap these insights to reimagine and reinvent work as a source of meaning, purpose, and joy. You'll find a link in the show notes, or you can also find it at your favorite bookseller now. Until next time. I'm Jonathan Fields, signing off for Good Life Project.